everyone, um, everyone wants to be strong in the face of the greatest danger. Policemen have bulletproof vests to face dangerous criminals. Firemen suits to face dangerous heat and smoke, and so they're fireproof. Houses we make with roofs sealed with ability to face dangerous leaks from torrential rain, and so they're waterproof. How do you get that kind of protection from spiritual problems in the church? How do you get that kind of protection from dangers, listen, against your spiritual life? Galatians 5.24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, that's our work. That's what we do. It's what we endeavor to do. It's what we've done since he saved us. It's what we're endeavoring to do now, and it's what we want to do in the future. Romans 6.12 says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that is, in your flesh, so that you obey its lusts. In other words, to keep your life from spiritual danger. How? How do you do that? Well, that's our text here in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 to 14, believe it or not. So if you have your Bibles with you right there, and you should, open them up to 1 Corinthians, and then go to the very last chapter there in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 and 14, and I'd like to read them aloud as we come close to the end of this letter in our study of it. The Apostle Paul here does something amazing that I'm going to share with you here in a moment. Listen to these verses. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. The Apostle Paul gives this church and us five positive commands that answer all the negative problems that this church was marked by. We put the text right before us here to see these principles. These are principles to flesh-proof your life. That is, to be able to handle the flesh. That's salvation. The penalty of sin was taken away. But like Paul says in Romans 7, sin remains. Say, where in my flesh? Oh no. Oh, that's okay. Because in salvation, he has granted us a power to be able to deal with that flesh. Now we need to remember, that the, the flesh makes a mess of everything, doesn't it? It is at the centerpiece of the problems that this church at Corinth had. We need to remember what this church at Corinth was like. Lots of sin, lots of failure, lots of problems. They had division. There was immaturity. There were problems with sexual immorality, problems with suing each other, problems with marriage, problems with idolatry, problems with alcohol, problems with spiritual gifts, and then they even had theological problems like thinking that there was no resurrection for us, no bodily resurrection. Now, if this church sounds a whole lot like the American church, it does. We told you at the very beginning this could have been called First Americans. I mean, no wonder this church goes down as probably the most rebuked church ever. You say, That's a li- you're exaggerating on that. No, I'm not. If you combine 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you would get 29 chapters. You cannot name a New Testament book that long. This is the most rebuked church in the Bible. 
Now, Paul really loved this church, and that's why he rebuked them so much. That's, by the way, what shepherds do. He doesn't give a shepherd or a parent license to be mean, to be harsh. But a good shepherd does rebuke sin. Chapter 4, verse 14, earlier in this letter, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Verse 15, like a father to children. See, And what any good father does is he sees the dangers... He sees the sin, he sees the fleshly living, and he calls attention to it. He warns. He says, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. You're about to hurt yourself. You're you're heading in the dangerous waters. That's not going to turn out well. I need to throw out the flare. I need to call your attention to this. He lays out truth. And he points things out, listen, not to be critical or picky, but to help. It's out of love. And that's just what this letter has been tackling one problem after another after another, right? Now this letter sort of ended really at the end of chapter 15. Remember uh, verse 58, look at it once more, therefore... He starts off with, therefore, that's a conclusion word. And that conclusion word wasn't just for what he was saying about the resurrection, but I believe that word, therefore, was a conclusion word for the whole letter. Always abound in the work of the Lord. He says, here's what I have to say. So therefore, keep working. If you're doing the Lord's work, don't stop. You're going to be tempted. Don't stop. Now, you say, well, well, then why is there a chapter 16 if that's the end? Because they did that kind of stuff back then. They kind of ended and then they gave, you know, their little formalities at the very end. But I want you to understand that chapter 16, it's sort of a by the way. You know, you, you do that, don't you? <laughs> you know, you have a, by the way, you're kind of at the door and maybe you're at the end of a phone call or a visit or at the end of a letter and you go, oh, oh, hang on, by the way, one more thing, right? That's what this is. Chapter 16 is the, oh, wait a minute, one more thing. And he's got a few of those one more things. All pastors do that, right? You know, you get to the end and they're about to close and you're like, oh, okay, okay, now I get to go eat. Oh, one more thing. No! Well, hey. We try, right? (laughs) So when you look at these two short verses that we have here, especially in the Greek that they were written in, the thing that jumps out is that in these two short letter or, or verses, you have five imperatives or voices of command in the Greek. Five. Boom, 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 boom. It stands out. Now remember, this whole letter has, has been about don't do this and uh, stop doing that and uh, you're doing this and it's, and it's all wrong. This has been quite negative that way. And sometimes, you know, parenting is that way, right? Where you do, you say negative, you say it negative, but you're trying to actually get them to do the positive, right? In saying the negative. You're not trying to be negative, but you also have to address the thing. And then you get to these two verses. And it is, do this, and do this, and do this, and do this, and do this. That's the sense of where we've been and where we're at right now. And then you look at just what he's telling them to do, and it jumps out. What? Listen, this is an answer to all the fleshly living 
that he's been telling them to stop doing. That's what verses 13 and 14 are. The answer to all the fleshly living that he's been telling them to stop doing. So you can call this the commands of the Holy Spirit to handle fleshly living. The commands of the Holy Spirit to handle fleshly living. Have you ever wanted that? Oh man, struggling so much with his flesh. I just want to stop it. Well, here you go. Five principles on how to do it. In fact, the first four commands are all words that he borrows from the military. They're military commands. Military verbs of action and order. Do this immediately. No options. These must be done. Period. What must be done? I mean, have you you noticed fleshly patterns of living and you've been trying to deal with them? He says, do this immediately. There are no options. Maybe there's someone in your life that keeps telling you about the change that you need to make and they see the problems that you don't see so easily. It could be your spouse. It could be a shepherd in your life that just cares about your relationship with the Lord. Yet they see something and they're trying to help you change and grow. This is what Paul has been with his church. Well, if that's you, then take these five principles that Paul gives us and apply them to the problems. Apply them to that fleshly living that you see. And you will be helped immensely and greatly. Having said that, let's take a look at them then. All right, here we go. Five principles, if you will, or kind of helps or guides, guidelines on how to handle those problems that seem to be there, stirred up, that stir up your flesh. First of all, be alert. Be alert. These aren't that hard to see. They're right here. Verse 13, be on the alert. Now, as I was looking at this word and and the various uh, commentators and and so forth that were pointing this out, by the way, you get the word Gregory from this word. The word literally means to be awake. He's basically telling them, wake up. That's literally what the word means, to wake up. But it's broader than that. Now, first thing you do when you wake up is you do what? You open your eyes. Besides moaning, I know. I know, right? But you get past that, you open your eyes. And that's what he's saying here. Open your eyes. Get your eyes looking at your surroundings. Take a look at your circumstances. You say, I've been trying to ignore them. And they won't let me. That's right. So why don't you look back? Look at them. Look at your relationships. Do that. Look at your struggles. See them. Listen to how Paul used this word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 10. He says, Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Now, that's the word. They're awake. And he's talking about the, the future second coming of Jesus, the kingdom. And he's talking about a physical, right? This is physical, waking. Awake or asleep, alive or dead, that's physical. But then you go back to chapter 5 or 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert, there's our word, and sober. And so he's also talking about being awake spiritually. So this word, wake up, can sometimes be used in the spiritual sense. Get yourself awake. You're sleeping on the job. You're sleeping on the life. (laughs) Wake up. That word can be both physical and spiritual. Wake up, awake, alert, get alert. Now clearly in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, it is spiritual. 
Be awake spiritually. Be alert. Open your eyes and take note of things that are around you, right? See it. Take it in, okay? Start calculating. Start adding it up. Start. Make sure you're thinking about it. Have an awareness of what's going on spiritually around you. See. Now, we have to be careful. He's not calling us to have paralysis by analysis. But he's calling us to see. He's telling these people, stop closing your eyes. Now what this is saying to us is that in our Christian life, we have to be awake. Now, Ephesians 5, that happened at salvation. He woke us up finally, right? But there's a practical awakening that has to be there. That's the positional awakening happened at salvation. This is a practical one. There has to be awareness if you're going to deal with your flesh, with spiritual problems, with things that have to do with disunity and immorality and gray areas and marriage and spiritual gifts and theological soundness. These are the things that he's been talking about here with the Corinthians. Now watch how all this works. Each one of these commands that are given, each one of these principles answers a fleshly problem that existed in this church with these believers. And it might exist in you. Now what's that tell us about them? It tells us that these believers were in what I'm calling a spiritual fog. They, they, they didn't see the issues. I mean, how can you deal with the issues if you don't even see them, right? And that's this first thing. They didn't see, what they didn't see, and I listen here, what they didn't see is the gravity of the issues. Just how bad things were. Listen, the first thing, you have to see it. You know, sometimes we see things, but we're in denial. I get it. Other times we see it, and we're in rebellion. He said, I just, not now. I don't want to deal with it right now. I know it's an issue. I'll deal with it later. Ooh, always a bad plan, right? But there are times where we literally just don't see it. Now, some of these believers had what I'm going to call, as I mentioned, a, I talked about fog. Some of them actually had a physical fog. There was a, there was a, some physical ramifications for the things that they were doing. Uh, for example, remember in chapter 11, um, they, verse 21, they, the church got together for a love feast and the meal before the communion service. And it says, in your eating, each one takes his own supper and one is hungry and another is drunk. See, what's the spiritual fog or the physical fog here? Well, I mean, they're literally drunk. You don't see things if you're drunk. You know what it is. I mean, uh, we, we understand physiologically what it is to be drunk. Getting drunk dulls the mind. It keeps you from thinking clearly. Okay? It makes you slower to think and react. Even if it's slower to react if you're trying to do something good or something just normal. You don't realize how loud you are. Or you don't realize uh, completely the thing that you're saying is more than what you were planning on saying. The filters have come down. There's a fog that's, that's in there. It takes away, really, to be drunk takes away your ability to be sharp and quick. And so some in the church were like that. They were actually struggling with that. We know they were struggling with that because that's what, a chapter, that's what chapter 11 says. But that's just some. Most were in what you could call a spiritual fog. That is that they were not alert spiritually. Now think this through with me. It's not that they didn't have the Bible taught. It, it, was, it was being taught to them. 
Now, there are some that don't even get that in, in churches. Faithful Bible exposition, that is, faithful Bible explanation. And then there are churches like ours where you teach the Bible and people still have spiritual fog. Lots of knowledge, but little insight. Little sight, even. Why is that? Well, you go back and look through 1 Corinthians and Paul says this a lot. Don't you know? Don't you know? 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? He asks a lot of questions like that in chapter 5. And then you get to chapter 6 and same thing. Verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Verse 3, same thing. Verse 9, same thing. Now, when he says, don't you know, is, is he saying that because they don't know? No, they, actually he's saying it because they do know. He says, you know this, but you live like you don't. That's the problem, right? You know it, you do know it, but you live like you're in a some kind of spiritual fog. Like you just don't even... Like this information is there, but it has no practical outworking in your life. He says it a few more times in chapter 6, verse 15. Don't you know your bodies are members of Christ? Yes. Yes, they know that. Verse 16. Don't you know that when you join yourself to a prostitute for sex that you become one body with her? Yes, they, they know that. Verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Yes, they know that. Listen, beloved, it's not that they lack the spiritual resources to know. They had knowledge. And we, oh my, we have access to so much knowledge. It's incredible. I mean, now, even with the, so you have the internet going on, and you can be connected to, you know, this thing or that thing, and pretty soon you have somebody explaining Greek and Hebrew to you, and you're saying to yourself, man, I didn't know this or I didn't know that. I can go with a click of my fingers and take a look at something that somebody said in 300, you know, A.D. Some, you know, some Bible exposition or some, some theology. It's not that they lack the spiritual resources. They had knowledge. They had the Holy Spirit. They had the very power of God in them to work it out. So what is the problem? They were not alert. That's why in 1534 he says, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. To be sober-minded was to have an awakened mind, a mind that is aware and awake and that looks, that takes in the surroundings, that understands that sin is around the corner if I keep doing this. If I keep going this direction. The idea of the word is watchfulness. This is a person who is in the eagle's nest. They're watching. They're on the lookout. Now what should we be on the lookout for? Let me give you a few things that we should be on the lookout for. Here's a big one. First of all, the devil. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5 eight, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You say, how can we spot the devil? Is he, uh, are we looking for a red hood and, you know, pitchfork and horns? No, 2 Corinthians 2.11. We're looking for his schemes. Chapter 10, verse 5, speculations raised up against the knowledge of God. Chapter 11, verse 3, things that try to get your mind away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's what you're looking for. There's another way to spot the devil, by the way. 1 John 2, now listen to this. He has a three-pronged strategy to dull your sight and make you sin. Verse 16. 1 John 2.16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
Ephesians 2 tells us the world is set on course by the devil. So there you go. Now we know his strategy. We've got it. What is it? Well, so many believers that can't spot the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, but we're called to be alert to it, to see it, to recognize it, to watch for it. See? And these things are things that just are used over and over by the devil to get us to be blind. Here's another thing to be on the lookout for. Not only the devil, but for temptation. You remember Jesus in the garden just before his death. He took three disciples with him in Mark chapter 14, verse 38. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Listen, temptation is to be something that we're to be watching out for. Temptation came around. And 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 tells us they were giving into it. How so? Because they weren't on the lookout. Chapter 10, verse 12. Take heed lest you what? Fall. And then in verse 13 he says, No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to men. In other words, be on the lookout for temptation. And it is a kind of temptation that is common to men. That everyone faces. So those are the two things to look for. There's another thing to look out for. You, can, you look out for apathy or indifference. In Revelation 3 to the church at Sardis, wake up and strengthen the things that remain. What do you mean? Verse 3, remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. In other words, they were getting the sermons, but it just was doing nothing for them. How do you feel? Uh, excited? No. Terrible? No. Somewhere in the middle. Oh, well, you need to be alert about that. You need to be be awakened that that's a problem. That's an issue. Therefore, he says, Remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Here's a self-confident church that doesn't even realize that it is asleep spiritually. Just going along, no real emotion, no real effort at receiving the word, at hearing it, at keeping it, at repenting. No effort at it. He said, I know the sin that I, I know the temptation, I know the sin, but, you know, I just struggle with everything. Well, are you putting in effort to repent? I mean, can you even see what you need to repent of? And if the answer is no, then you need this command. Be on the alert. The Bible also tells us to be alert to false teachers, 2 Timothy 4 or 5. But you be sober in all things. Why? Chapter 3, because false teachers are coming. Chapter 4, verse 3, ones that will not endure sound doctrine. Acts 20, be on guard for yourselves and the church among you. Be on the lookout for them. We don't want to be the church that sleeps. Second Peter 2 and Jude says that they will creep in unawares, it says. In fact, Acts 20 says, among you, and when he says among you, he means among the eldership. Romans 16 tells us, draw a circle around those kinds of people. Put a boundary around them so everyone knows who the false teachers are. Keep your eye on them, Paul says. In Romans 16. Ephesians 6, verses 18 through 20, we're told to keep watch in prayer. There's another one. It's another thing we're to be looking out. I mean, sometimes you, you, you know you're seeing something, but you're not sure what. You know what you should do? Start praying. Open my eyes to see, Lord. And in prayer, you keep on the lookout, right? 
one more that scripture tells us to look at, have a look out for, and that is the return of the king, Jesus. James 5, 7, be patient until the coming of the Lord, like the farmer that waits. He works, he looks, he's patient. We're to be like farmers. Matthew twenty four forty two. therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. We look. We're alert to that. In fact, I'll give you another reason why. You're talking to somebody who's you know, maybe struggling with drink or, or some other substance. I can tell you why you don't do that, why you don't do that substance. Because you keep your mind as, as alert as possible to look for Jesus' return. Are you convinced he's coming back? Well, then don't get drunk. Well, then don't get put substance in you that will take your mind away. Always alert. Always alert. So here were these Corinthian believers, and they were living in a spiritual fog, not seeing anything, not looking out for anything. What do they need to do? Wake up, get alert, start watching, become aware. You say, how do you do that? Through the lens of Scripture, Psalm 119, verse 105, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my what? Path. To my path. You hide the word in you so that you'll have vision to be able to see. So it's through the lens of Scripture. Mark it down. We don't have time to look at this passage. But Proverbs 23 through uh, 423, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 23 through 26. So that's the first principle in how to deal with the problems of your flesh. The first guideline, be alert. There's a second one. Let's call this one, be solid. Be solid. Paul tells them, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm. Be solid. Be firm. You could say be firm. Don't be wishy-washy. That's what he's saying. Don't be flaky. Don't vacillate. Ephesians 4, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Don't be the tossed back and forth type person. James 1, not doubting like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by wind. Double-minded, unstable in all his ways. That's what, that's what that is going on there in, in Corinth. Man, sometimes can, can that maybe sometimes describe you? you? You feel like you're over here, and then sometimes you're over there. Sometimes now you're, whoop, you're back over here. And the call is for you to be solid. Now what's that tell us about the Corinthians? They were the opposite of solid or firm. He tells them stand firm because throughout this letter he's been showing them you have not been firm. You have not been solid. On Christ the solid rock I stand, right? That hasn't been you. You've been shaky at best. You say shaky in what? The faith. Listen, not just faith. The faith. That's the word here, the article, the doctrine, the theology, the biblical truth convictions. Now, it's not hard to see that in 1 Corinthians. I mean, we we just had a whole chapter. We just studied in chapter 15 about how they were struggling with the bodily resurrection in the future. I mean, that's just basic, and yet they weren't firm on that. So we're talking about the basics of Christianity, the basics of the gospel, standing firm in the word, standing firm in the gospel, standing firm in sound doctrine, in theology. It can be somewhat in vogue for people to, especially when you're younger and you're just learning, to feel like, hey, I'm, I've come up with a new way of look at theology and a new doctrine and a new this thing or that thing. 
That's not a person that's standing firm. You feel like you're going to be the one that's going to discover something that for 2,000 years we just haven't seen. Now you can actually see this idea of, of standing firm right from the first chapter. Remember verse 18? Listen to this. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Why are you telling us this? We already believe the gospel. No, he's telling them, yeah, I thought you did. You got to come back to the thing that is, you're not, you're not firm in it though. Verse 20, they were getting derailed by debaters. They were derailed by all the voices of wisdom. And what they weren't getting was that the gospel is a foolish message to the unbeliever. Why are you listening to the unbeliever's wisdom? That's foolishness. And you're making a big deal about it. Why make that a point? Because they were lifting up human wisdom so high that, that it was pushing out the message of the gospel. You know, we do that too every time we make a big deal about philosophy or psychology or sociology and they were trying to put human wisdom on the same level as God's word. Chapter 3, verse 18. I mean, these, these people really pushed out human wisdom to a seriously high place. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age... He must become foolish so that he may become wise. And he goes on to say that the Lord's going to destroy that person. It's a very serious thing. Notice, he says, now if any man among you thinks, I mean, some of them thought this. They weren't solid because of how they thought. I mean, they deceived themselves into thinking that they have wisdom at the same level as God's word. And so they weren't solid about the place of God's word. They also weren't solid about the place of Jesus Christ. Remember uh, chapter 12? Some were saying this and claiming that they were saying this by the Holy Spirit, verse 3. What, what were they saying? Jesus is accursed. I said, what? You, you, you can't say that and claim it's by the Holy Spirit. We don't know if it was people that were claiming to speak in tongues and, and then it, and it, was, it kind of came out that they were saying Jesus is accursed. But they were. It's possible also that they brought into the view into the church the view that the human body called Jesus was cursed while the spirit part of him was not. And so they denied the person of Jesus Christ. They let that view get in there. You see the picture? Wavering about the place of scripture, wavering about the place of Jesus Christ and who he is. And then a third thing you could even say, wavering about the gospel itself, and that was chapter 15. We talked about the connection of the resurrection of the gospel. And so they got the scripture wrong, the person and work of Jesus Christ wrong, the gospel and its connection to the resurrection, and that's why they weren't solid spiritually. Do not lowball theology. Do not make it seem like a trivial thing. It is important. It is tightly connected to how you live. So many places that speak to this. I'll give you a few. Second Thessalonians 2.14 It was for this He called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now, before the New Testament was just straight book, it was called tradition. Do you understand that? Before it was this, it was called tradition because it came by word of mouth or little letters given by Paul that needed to be circulated. 
Stand firm in that, he says. And that statement, stand firm, applies in so many directions, in the faith, in unity, in the will of God, and so forth. Stand firm in it. And then you have 1 Peter 5, verse 12, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this, that is, this letter that I have written to you, Peter says. I wrote 1 Peter. And he says, what can you tell us about 1 Peter? Well, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. What is? First Peter is. First Peter is the grace of God. That's what he says. Stand firm in it. Stand firm in the grace of God that comes to us through the word. They were not solid in the word, in Christ, in theology, and therefore they weren't solid in God's grace. No firmness. You know, you can tell when people aren't solid. When a person is not solid, they're just all over the map. No clarity. No real direction. Always changing views. They're not, they're not solid with their convictions. And they're not solid with their conduct. They're not solid with their creeds and with their commitments. There's a third principle to deal with the problems that stir up your flesh. See, we, you've got to be alert. You've got to see it. You've got to see them, right? You have to be solid that is firm. Thirdly, you have to be mature. Mature. You could say manly here. That would actually be fine, but you have to explain it. Some here also say courageous. That's a fine interpretation, I think courageous. Look at verse 13. Act like men. Now this one's fascinating. And by the way, it's not saying, hey, you're acting like a woman. Stop it. Man up. You know what I mean? It's not what this is saying. I can see where it would be easy to look at it and think that, but that's not what it's saying. This is the only place this Greek word is used in the New Testament. It's, um, it has more of the idea of being mature. Almost as if to say, grow up. You ever say that to somebody? Hey, man, you need to grow up. You're acting silly. You're acting out of the bounds here. Stop being childish and immature positive way of saying this is this. Act like men. Andritzomai. That's the Greek term. I, I, and I think the, the idea of courage is right there with the idea of manliness and maturity. Now this church really had a problem here. And you can see it in a lot of places. We've already seen it in some of these places. But you go back to chapter 14, 20. Remember this? Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be what? Babes or infants. But in your thinking be mature. That's the idea. He's saying grow up. I mean, have grown up thinking. Mature thinking. Remember what he told them in chapter 4, verse 21? What, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love in a spirit of gentleness. Now, just so you know, what he was saying is, the rod is for young ones learning discipline. It's what Proverbs teaches, right? Read it. It's what Proverbs teaches. Learning how to obey, and you, you, you teach your children the lanes... And then you hold them accountable on how to stay in the lanes. Okay? And why it's important. And the dangers outside of the lanes. Right? Do you want me to come to you like a parent would come to his child, he says? Paul says, I I feel like I have to treat you guys like children. You're so immature. Chapter 3, verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. He's always telling them, you're just like children. And that's not, in this sense, a good thing. 
In fact, remember what he says later on in chapter 13? I just remember this. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Do you realize that when he, by saying that, he was confronting them? This whole letter he's been telling them to stop being like children. So when he says, when I became a child, oh, by the way, which you haven't yet. Or when I became a man, I, when I became, uh, I, I put away childish things when I became a man. He's, he's telling them you haven't yet, but you need to. It's like uh, we have to go back to milk instead of solid food with you guys. Why? Because there's all this fighting and division and fleshliness and emotions are running crazy. And that's what he was telling them in chapter 14. You know, sometimes we say, why don't you act your age? Have you ever said that to somebody? You know, why don't you act your age? As though like each age has its own maturity. You know, this age here is this mature, this one you expect more or whatever. I think we could think a little more simple than that. There's immature and there's mature, and that's how the, that's how the Bible presents it. Be mature. Now, don't misunderstand this, by the way. This is all part of the sanctification process, the growth process. You know, um, In Philippians 3, Paul says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. In other words, I'm not very righteous, but I press on to become more righteous to gain finally in heaven that very righteousness that I already have in Christ. Do you understand that? In other words, I have it positionally, but I want to press on to higher levels on this earth practically. That's a direction of maturity, okay? It's what maturity looks like. It is the pressing on. It's when you can sit down with a person and talk about them growing up and they don't get offended. There are areas that I see, I want to help you. You should have those conversations, obviously, with your your kids, but here Paul is having this conversation with them. Maturity is always the Christian direction, beloved. Ephesians 4, 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Jesus Christ is into maturity. He wants maturity. That's why it really offends me, whether it's television or, or a book, and they try to portray Jesus because they're trying to have him, man and you know, humanity and, and, and Christ, kind of be similar. They can portray Jesus as laughing at, at jokes and kind of lighthearted, even, even on the verge of you know, doing something wrong, but he doesn't. is not our Lord at all. It's not the picture. Always with Jesus, it's progression for us towards maturity. Growing up is the Christian direction. You say, well, how can a person grow up? First Peter 2, mark it down. Put aside a deceitful life, a hypocritical life, And then you'll crave the word so that by it, he says, you may grow in respect to your salvation. Let the word be in you so you can grow. Let me just say it this way. If you are not daily letting the word in you, you are not growing. You're not. You say, well, but I've been praying a lot. You have no idea how to talk to God if you're if you're not in the Word. I can already tell you if you're praying but you're not in the Word, your prayers are shallow. I know that already. So you, oh, how do you know that? Because the Word informs us of God's mind, and then we know how to pray. 
There's a fourth principle to flesh-proofing your life. Fourth, be strong. Be strong. This is, uh, there it's there, the next, next come verse, verse 13. It's in the passive voice. Let me say it this way. You cannot make yourself strong. It has to come from outside of you, and that's why I believe it's in the passive voice. It has to be from the Spirit. Strength given you from the Lord to work out your salvation. Something that is the Lord has to, has to do. First John 2.14, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. You've been made strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You're strong, but listen to this. But here's how you became strong. How did you become strong? The word of God abides in you. And it caused you to overcome evil. That's how you got strong. It, it caused you to overcome temptation. Second Timothy 2.1 Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, you can't be strong by yourself, but if you're in His grace, His grace is in you and controlling you, then you can be strong. Now you remember, this is answering a problem that they had. What problem did they have? Listen. The problem that they have, they thought they were strong enough. In other words, their view of themselves was way up here. I mean, this whole letter Paul has been trying to show them, no, you're not as strong as you think. That's your problem. You think too high of yourself. Let me say it a different way. Your problem is you think you're awesome. That's your problem. You're believing what the world is telling you. Oh, you got to learn to respect yourself. You have to learn to say, love yourself because of how awesome you really are. Sorry, I'm not doing the little charismatic deal here. It's just I got, I got a fly over here. This kind of, he's he's doing battle with me here. We're battling. All right, it's all good. God made you. So I know. I'm not sure for what purpose, but I, I I do love you, fly. But you know, maybe not that close to my face. You think too highly about your abilities and strength and you don't think of yourselves as weak and dependent. Again, lots of places that we could go, but the best one is chapter 4. Look at chapter 4. Turn to chapter 4 for just a moment. Look at it there. Verse 7. For who regards you as superior? I mean, boy, we could spend a long time with just that question. As superior, wait, Paul, wait a minute. Are you saying they thought that they were superior? Yeah, that's what he's saying. Why ask the question, right? Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Now listen, Christianity is a received religion. It is the only one... It is the only one. And it is not about anything from us. Christianity is not about you bringing something to the table. Listen, we bring nothing to God's table but our sin. And that's why Christianity is a received religion. And here are the Corinthians, and they feel so superior. And Paul says, I thought God's gospel was a gospel of receiving. You you have what you have in the gospel because you received it. Why boast then as if you are something when you received it all? There's nothing missing. Why do you boast as though you bring something to the table, as though you have something? I mean, all over the place in this letter, he reminds them of how arrogant they are. Chapter 4, verse 18. Now, some have become arrogant. Chapter 5, verse 2. He could only get a few verses in before he had to come back to the deal. You have become arrogant. Earlier, chapter 4, verse 6. So that none of you, no one of you, will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Listen, it's all over the place. 
Chapter 8, verse 2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Now, what ought he to know? Chapter 8, verse 1. That knowledge makes arrogant. And so if he calls them arrogant all throughout here, put it all together. What makes them so, makes them think that they're so arrogant? Knowledge. They know things. They've got some kind of wisdom. Some type of corner market on knowing things. Chapter 4, verse 8. Look at it. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You have, you have become kings without us. You don't need us apostles. You're so incredible. You guys are amazing. You say, are they? I thought he just said they're arrogant. This is what you call sarcasm, okay? Verse 9, I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death. Now, that's not sarcasm. That's him saying, we've accepted that. We've embraced that. We understand what we are as apostles. We give you the truth. You beat us up. Okay, we get it. But you guys think you're greater than apostles. That's okay with us because we think, so little of ourselves, but that's because we understand Christianity is a received religion. You don't get that yet. You need to be reminded, we are nothing. He is everything. That's what they struggled with. I mean, they felt that they were already strong. They were superior. That's why later in chapter 9, Paul had to tell them, What you need is the kind of discipline that gives you self-control over your bodies because you think you're impervious. You think you're awesome. You think that you can do anything. You need to understand just how weak you are. You say, but I thought the New Testament teaches us to be strong. It does. Ephesians 6.10. Listen to this here. Be strong in the Lord. But notice next. And in the strength of his might. Uh, you can't make yourself strong. It is his doing. They weren't living at that level. Instead, they depended on themselves. They were arrogant. They believed that they were superior. And it's a passive verb in our text. And so we're talking about strength that comes to you through him. We're talking about Psalm 27, verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Oh, there it is. You're going to make yourself strong, right? Nope. And let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Do you know why you wait for the Lord? To get what? Strength. He says, do everything. When he says, be strong, be strong, what he's saying is, you fight every feeling and every temptation that wants to hit the eject button, that wants to run away, that wants to get out of this situation. And you wait so that the Lord can make you strong and you can get the work done. See, that's the point. That's what he's saying. Now, where does the strength come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 3.16, listen to this verse. That he would grant you to be strengthened with the power, with power, that is, through his spirit in the inner man. Isn't that good? So you have those two things, the word in you and the spirit, and that's how you handle the flesh. One last principle that leads to a flesh-proofed life. Fifth, be loving. Be loving. See it there in verse 14? Let all that you do be done in love. Now all the other four words are military commands. This one is a command, but it really brings the proper attitude with it. To it all. I like this too, and even tying it into military, into the military. You know, you think of military people, they're tough, you know what I mean? We're rigid, we're like in line and everything and everything. I like that actually. I like, I want the people that protect our country, I want them to be like that. But you know, there's one other thing they have. And you talk to them, and there's a, almost a brotherhood that has to be there when they're in the foxhole, when they're in the difficult place. They need to know that they have one another and trusting each other and helping each other to carry stuff out. Now, 
That's the lesser. Let's go to the greater picture here. You can call that a certain kind of love, but in the, it, with believers, there's a greater love. We do all of those four things, but we need to do it with a loving attitude. And you remember the Corinthians really had a tough time understanding love. Chapter 11, they were neglecting the poor and indulging food and getting drunk at the expense of the poor. That's not love. Chapter 5, taking another man's... Uh, not just another man, your, your, you know, your, your dad's wife, who's a stepmom, and having an immoral relationship with her, that's not love. Now, this is the balancer of things. I mean, I'll tell you how so. You, you bring the strength, but there is no love, and what's going to happen? You're going to run that person over, right? You get watchful, but there's no love. And you'll be suspicious of people. You get solid and firm in your life, in your your convictions. But if there's no love, you'll confuse that person. You know, because you seem immovable in what you believe, but you're not very caring. And so that's confusing. Great convictions, but where's the love? That's confusing. God saves us to serve and to care. John 13, Jesus washed feet. You get mature, but don't love, and you'll soon become immature. You remember these Corinthians were all about the feelings and excitements and passions, but they were not about the love. And that's why Paul wrote... Chapter 13, they were fighting and dividing. And so he wrote chapter 1. And they were fleshly. And he wrote chapter 3. They were suing others. And, you know, so he wrote chapter 6. That's not love. They were lusting in chapter 5 and 6. That's not love. They were holding on to their own freedoms. And even if it meant offending another person, that's not love. Over and over and over. He had to confront them in this. And so he says at the very end, just be loving, guys. How do you, how do you get loving in, in all things? Holy Spirit. First indication of a person who's walking in the Spirit, Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all those other things. Love is the umbrella one. That's also, by the way, the next verse in Ephesians 3.16, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. See? All right. Well, that's how you respond to problems. That's how you respond to threats that lure the flesh. And in a sense, I end with Romans 13.14. Romans 13, 14, actually 13, 13 and 14, he says, let's behave properly as in the day, not in carousing, drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. And and then he says, make no provision for the flesh. In regard to its lust, stop lusting is what he's saying. Now, he says, oh man, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to not lust over anything, food, opposite sex, Anything. Well, before saying no, there is something you need to do positively. And it's the positive that we often miss out. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You make a plan to put him on and you'll be able to fight those lusts. You'll be able to fight um, issues of that come against your flesh. That's the problem. You plan to put on Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 and 14. You want to fight your flesh? Be alert, be solid, be mature, be strong, be loving. That's how you do it.
Lord, um, we all are in this flesh. Sin is still there. We thank you for Christ who paid for it. But Lord, we're, we're trying to live this life and wanting to do so, Lord, in a way where we can deal with the flesh that we now have to, uh, we want to present our flesh as members, as instruments of righteousness, Lord, but it is hard. So we thank you for these five principles. Help us to live in the light of them. And we will give you the glory in advance. We love you and praise you. And in Jesus' name we ask for this. Amen.